politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I am here, as always, with Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of said Progress Network. And we are having a series of conversations with seriously interesting people about seriously important topics, one of which today is how we are measuring and trying to figure out the world we are in economically. Now, when people hear the word economically, uh, there usually is a pause followed by a snooze button. But in this case, trying to figure out what the world looks like economically in a post-pandemic, or at least a hopefully post-pandemic world, where governments have been spending trillions of dollars in ways that violate every rule that supposedly existed until, well, yesterday, uh, does raise the question of, are the ways we thought society is working economically actually the way society needs to or should or even does? function economically. And so today we're going to speak with a member of the Progress Network, Diane Coyle, who has been one of the more creative and innovative thinkers about how are we measuring the world. Diane is the co-director of the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. She works in interdisciplinary research on the key policy challenges of our times, and uh, our times have many challenges. She is the author of numerous books, most recently Cogs and Monsters, out in October 2021. And she's a regular contributor to the Financial Times and Project Syndicate. Uh, she was previously the economics editor of The Independent, and she started her career at the UK Treasury. So, Diane Coyle, it's such a pleasure speaking with you in person. I feel like we've been bouncing around each other for a whole bunch of years. It's good occasionally for disconnected atoms in space to, if not collide, then at least enter each other's genial orbit. Um, you've been one of the more outspoken, fascinating, eclectic, interesting, I'm sure we could come up with several more adverbs, but our time is limited, voices of Here's how we're looking at the world, either through the lens of GDP or through the lens of economic data that we collect. So here's the world that that shapes and the world that the picture that that presents. And you've been acutely critical of the way in which too many extrapolations have been made of, you know, the numbers good, society's a success, the numbers bad, society's a failure, the numbers are good, government's a success, the numbers are bad, government's a failure. And I wonder as we are all, you know, depending on when this is being listened to, presumably we are in a post-COVID time or at least a post the most acute crisis time, you know, let's, let's hope that that's the case by the time people are listening to this. Have, has the, the past 18 to 24 months sort of reaffirmed a lot of what you've looked at in terms of, you know, numbers and assumptions and orthodoxies? Well, it's been a very um, interesting time to be a social scientist and an economist, obviously, because there has been this tremendous natural intervention in the normal, stable order of things. And um, it's a good time to reflect on what we think is important and what, what we've been doing. And one of the things that has really struck me and many other people really forcibly is how different people's experiences have been. So the ones who can work from home in their professional jobs and can't spend all the money that they're earning and are adding to their already existing savings, that's all fine and dandy. There's even talk about a new roaring 20s. And then there are those who have been able to pay their rent, built up new debts, 
and really struggling. So in uh, our, our two countries, those trends were very um, present anyway, those inequalities, and they have obviously become even starker and underlined even more by the differences in health outcomes. And it's been uh, another lesson, I think, in the fact that um, the economic measures, the incomes or, or GDP, um, although they have their limitations, they're actually really tightly correlated with other things that people care about, like health and access to clean air and green space. Now, actually, I was uh, running some surveys just before the first lockdown in the UK, trying to understand how people value the free digital goods that we all have been using so much in the past 18 months or so by asking how much would you need to be paid to give up X for 12 months when X is Facebook or online shopping or personal emails and so on. And uh, we included parks because access to park is free. And then we also included some goods that you pay for, like newspapers rather than online news. And then um, the, the lockdown happened and we ran the survey again a few months later and then we ran it again after 12 months. And it's really striking to see some of those changes. Um, access to online shopping and uh, access to parks, for example, both increased enormously in value. So it's been another lesson for me in thinking about this wider array of indicators than just the quarterly GDP that you're talking about that the politicians take the take the praise for whenever it goes up and avoid the blame for whenever it goes down. I mean, one thing that was interesting, really interesting to me about the pandemic conversation was that there was this, seemed like this natural holistic view to it that uh, all of a sudden it felt very natural to talk about mental health and loneliness and physical health and the economic consequences of the lockdown and look, and, you know, look at all of it as a whole. And it seems to me like your work is trying to move you know, economics in that direction. So do you think that the, first of all, would you agree with what I just said, you know, about a more holistic pandemic conversation? And if you do, do you see that translating into your work with the economy? Is, is economics moving in that direction, do you think? I do agree with you. And in fact, I'm midway through some work now with some colleagues looking at the way that the structure of uh, a local economy is actually one of the best predictors of health outcomes during the pandemic. I think people understand that being on low incomes or um, being a member of certain ethnic minorities has been a risk factor for COVID outcomes. But what's been eye-opening for me is the way that's really tightly tied to the entire structure of an economy. What occupations are, what's the you know, industrial picture of, of, of a, a given place. And so these things are all linked together whereas economics is typically just focused on one aspect of it and ignored all of the um, you know, interactions between things. And a great example is the importance of a tree cover or access to clean air and green space and how that is actually really tightly linked to straightforward economic outcomes because it affects your health, which affects your human capital, which affects productivity and incomes. So I think you're right to say that these things are all, all really linked. Although it's interesting in the in the uh, the free goods of the internet and which to the Progress Network members you know Eric Benjolson also Andy McAfee have done there's been this attempt over the past ten to fifteen years and you've obviously been doing this a well to capture what is the additive value of things that are free given that most of our macroeconomic statistics that use that, that frame the map of how we're doing only capture things that have a price, right? So you're always trying to figure out, you, you just referred to the surveys you're doing. One way to try to figure out a price is to ask people what they would give up, right? What's, what equivalent do they have in their minds? And then what's the nominal value of that? Uh, which you could do with clean air and you could do with parks as well. But it's such an intensely constructed effort because we essentially live in an economic world where those things are all external or, or even non-existent, right? fresh air and parks, like we get the fact that we should have parks. We Cities go, oh, we should take care of parks and clean up parks. Um, but how do you really, I mean, is, has, has the ship sailed too much? Uh, there's been a lot of talk about all uh, inadequacies of how we're looking at things, but do you see any actual governmental movement, local or national in any country that is kind of gets this and has started to say, well, what do we do about that? How do we integrate these things? 
I'm beginning to be a a bit optimistic about it, actually. And it's partly because interest in things digital is driving interest in these wider kinds of um, things that we value as well, you know, be it nature or unpaid work in the home. And a lot of economists have been really suspicious, as you'll know, about these kinds of approaches, surveys that ask people, because it seems a bit a bit woolly. But you have to remember that GDP is constructed from surveys too. And very often it's been sending surveys to factory managers to ask, um, you know, what they've got in stock or how much they spent on investment in the last quarter. And this is, isn't really any, any woollier than that. It's just as valid a method, I think. And so the interest in digital stuff is, and the pandemic is actually, I think, starting to change opinions a little bit in economics. And a lot of economists will find it really hard to um, leave behind, you know, you just look at market prices and leave it to the market. But my sense is that things are shifting partly because of pandemic, partly because of all the uh, climate issues. It's funny, you know, in in this, uh, like when you look under the hood, I think most people don't realize just how fuzzy, I love the fact you use the word woolly. That's just one of those perfect English and Americans, you know, are divided by a common language. Um, if you look at how these things actually are constructed, you start, it's like looking at legislation and sausage. It's things you don't want to peek under the hood to, to look at mm. too closely, how vastly fuzzy they are rather than we know that our economy grew by 2.8% this quarter. I mean, we even, yeah. most people don't even realize that three years later, all those numbers will be revised sometimes pretty radically. Maybe, maybe you were always knew it, but when I uh, did my book about GDP, it was a real eye-opener for me that there was so much uncertainty and that people had always known that there was so much uncertainty. You know, books since from the 1950s saying uh, there's a 10 or 15% margin of error on your GDP number. I'm wondering if we could backtrack a little bit and just, you know, connect the dots for for people who might not be familiar with this conversation. What's the problem with just sticking with GDP, right? Because we wouldn't be trying to move beyond it if there wasn't some issue with just sticking with it. So what's the issue? Well, for me, it's, it's fundamentally that it's a really partial picture of things that we care about. And when our economies were were poorer than they are now, it was the main thing to care about because it's really correlated with things that matter a lot, such as health and educational opportunities and so on. Um, but it's not very well linked to other things that matter. Um, the most obvious one is uh, the environment. We're not reckoning at all the services that we take from nature for free, and that's going to come back and bite us. Uh, Climate disturbing weather is one example which will um, damage agricultural productivity around the world and make some places unlivable and cause mass migrations of people unless we do something about that. Loss of biodiversity is similarly going to make it really hard for the world to feed itself unless we tackle that quite quickly. So not pricing those matters. I think actually not pricing volunteer work and work in the home has mattered also because... Um, we, we kidded ourselves to the 1960s and 70s that growth was much higher than it was because a lot of it was women who had been in the home going into paid employment, buying new consumer goods and ready meals and so on. But also it means that policy decisions get taken that don't take due account of all the caring that needs to be done. When you're deciding about taxes or welfare payments, you should be thinking about that. Who is going to care for uh, elderly people and, and children? So it's distorted policy decisions. And um, those, for me, are the sort of main issues. Um, but obviously, digital has come along and made it much harder to interpret all the figures anyway. And that's, I think, really helped open up this debate because it's created a coalition of people who are interested in talking about well, what, what do we think we're measuring? Are we doing it well? And actually, what do we want to be measuring? And what kind of society um, do we want to be shaping by decisions based around these numbers? And that's a good thing. I think that's a really healthy discussion. It's, you know, one of the challenges too, which we're seeing now is GDP is highly sensitive to the aftermath of a catastrophe in that catastrophes are really good for subsequent GDP. In Mm -hmm. fact, they're so good for subsequent GDP, you can almost make an argument that 
you know, we should generate catastrophes to generate economic growth. Because on the other side of the pandemic, between trillions of dollars of government spending in the EU, in the UK, in the United States, around the world, and pent up uh, demand, people not having done whatever that is they're going to do, we're likely to see some of the best GDP growth in both the developed and the developing world over the next 12 to 24 months that we've seen since the end of World War II. Another uh, you know, catastrophe-induced GDP growth. But I, on your comment of like, what is it we actually want to structure, right? What, what is the world we want to live in? We probably don't want to live in a world where the aftermath of catastrophes is an optic of, wow, we're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think a lot of people would trade the COVID pandemic for better GDP. <laughs> right. No. And you're forgetting that we had the biggest decline for 300 years before we had the the, the bounce back as well. So there's uh, you shouldn't overlook that. <laughs> but um, you know, you're, uh, people will obviously be pleased by uh, big GDP growth numbers, not least because it means pe- everybody's getting back into jobs. Um, but what it overlooks is the destruction of assets to do that. Whether it's um, you know the uh, direct uh, loss of people through um, deaths or long-term illnesses, um, whether it's the loss of businesses that have had to close down. So the argument's a bit like saying, well, I'm going to smash the machines in my factory because then I can spend a lot of money on investment and hire some more people and it will be great. So it's having a balance sheet in that national perspective and um, thinking about um, what in the jargon is called comprehensive wealth. So all of the assets that we have available to us as, as a society people, nature, um, machines, uh, all of these things. How do we work them together to build uh, what we want and what we want for our children as well? Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club. The group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. If GDP is what we think is success, people will strive for GDP. And political leaders all the time say, you know, I, you know, they always put it, you know, I've succeeded in getting the economy to grow up at 6%. Now, what he did is hard to figure out, but that's, that's the, the politician uh, does that. You know, I've created X million jobs. So that's part of the political rhetoric. The question is, by doing that, they focus policies on things that will increase GDP. Uh, there's actually... Um, Informing the commission, we've we've identified a large number of ways in which GDP is not a good measure of economic performance or societal well-being. Uh, one of them I've already alluded to, which is GDP doesn't tell you about what happens to the typical citizen. That was Nobel Prize-winning economist Joseph Stieglitz talking about measuring national economic success with GDP for Fora.tv. So if there were some other metric other than GDP or metrics um, 
I understand you know, we're in this conversation of trying to figure out what such a thing would look like and how to measure it. But do you have any idea if, if you were to assess like where we are right now with this non-GDP number or, or non-GDP metrics uh, be good, be bad? Are we in a rosy picture right now? Are we in a disastrous picture? What would be our current situation? Oh gosh, that's a hard question. I, I don't know. I don't know is the answer. Um, it's it's swings and roundabouts, isn't it? You know, on the one hand, we've got all these fantastic innovations. They don't get well measured in GDP. And how on earth would you place a value on the vaccines that are going to avert lots of deaths and illness? Um, and on the other hand, we have the aftermath of the pandemic and the catastrophe. And we've got all the uh, resource implications of climate change and biodiversity loss. And how do you how do you weigh those up together in one number? Well, that's that's really hard to do. Or a few um, but on the other hand, yeah, there are a few numbers. And then on the other hand, um, it's just hard to concentrate on too many numbers. So you've got to whittle it down somehow to a handful at most. I was just going to add, it'll keep me going for the rest of my career and probably next generation as well. <laughs> well, I mean, at least there's that. I mean, it's a career enhancer, if nothing else. Definitely. So... Insofar as like statistics are, um, they're narratives about data. That's not my line. That's often been said. And we certainly live in a world where there's just a, a absolute surfeit of information. Right? Data is everywhere. And wading through it and sifting through it and making sense of it is much more complicated. And of course, now we have algorithms and programs and AI to help us sift through all the data that's being generated by algorithms and AI and, and, and more data, but trying to create a comprehensive map of like what's important. Do you believe in, we should go, we should start with first principles, like what constitutes a good society and then try to construct a useful map for government and corporations and individuals to kind of measure what they're doing against it? Should we actually try for a limited set of numbers? Because part of the problem is presumably any number you would create, any one or two numbers you would create statistics to try to blend complicated societies would would have all the problems of GDP. That just would be somewhat different problems in specific. Um, so what's the, what's the starting point? Is it what constitutes a good society? And then dot, 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 dot. What does one do? This is uh, really difficult, and um, there's the problem of a proliferation of different indicators, dashboards, different kinds of models for thinking about this. And I think part of the challenge is that we want to get everybody converging to the same kind of mental framework for thinking about the world, because that's important to align decisions that need to be taken um, to get everybody pointing in the same direction for society, whether it's business expectations about what market um, demand will be like, or whether it's the global coordination that you need to address climate change. It's very powerful to have a standardized framework. And that's why GDP has been so sticky, because economists and statisticians agreed it um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, and, and it's stuck. So there's definitely a problem of too much um, too much data, I think. SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, there's something like 300 separate indicators there. And you don't have any idea about how they trade off against each other. And there are contradictions in those. So I'm very keen that we get something that's, you know, not there aren't too many numbers and it's it's consistent with economic theory. So treasuries and finance ministries and central banks buy into the program and we can get some kind of we can get some kind of standard. But having said that, you know, I think your question about what does the good society look like is the right one, because if you're interested in public policy, which is supposed to make things better, then what is better and for whom is it better? And so the questions about distribution come up. What is it you want to see more of? What, what do you want to see less of? So you have to have some framework for thinking about the good society. And economics, it's traditionally been the greatest good of the greatest number, the classic utilitarian, um, just, just make it bigger. And um, that to me seems quite flawed. It's got us to this situation where we have been very short-sighted about what we're doing with our societies. So thinking about, you know, alternative ethical frameworks is important too. Golly, we've got deep into philosophy. I didn't mean to do that so quickly. I was going to yeah. save that for the crescendo at the end. 
<laughs> no, no, I think I think having little crescendos along the way is a, is a really good thing. So treat this as kind of a, a either a false summit or a mini crescendo or just a an interesting peak on the way to another one, right? Are, we, are you with? <laughs> I think me? so. We're we're all about the uh, you know consistent and small crescendos here at mm-hmm. what could go right. <laughs> That's interesting, uh, Emma. You um uh, are 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 people. Do you think people in, in post-pandemic land are, are thinking more in terms of what's a good life and not uh, how much and, and, and more and more and more? Or is that just a, a brief stepping out of uh, the lane that people will re-enter? I think absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely a sort of devotee maybe of Arthur Brooks. And uh, he talks about if you miss the opportunity of the pandemic to sort of assess your life in a personal way, you've missed a huge, huge opportunity. And um, I think if we miss that opportunity on a societal level as well, we will have missed a huge, huge opportunity. And I certainly leave it in the hands of people like Diane to, to keep that conversation going. Emma, you mentioned you mentioned mental health right at the start, and I think that's one of the legacies of what's happened that we'll have to face up to, particularly for young people who've been disrupted at school. And um, I think that's going to be quite a big deal that will lead that generation to reevaluate things. And if you're around young people, as I am, you'll know anyway that there's just a big generational shift in terms of attitude to society, to the environment. So I think um, I think things will actually change quite a lot. And um, when you've had the once in however many hundred years event, it would be odd, I think, to expect things to just snap right back to normal. And when you say there's a younger generational shift towards uh, society and the environment, meaning that there's a greater energy towards care and stewardship of those things or something else? Yes, I think so. And uh, rejection of um, materialism for its own sake. Um, But the the passion that has gone into the climate strikes and preparing for COP26 and so on, even before the pandemic fully hit, I think was was quite striking. And I talked to employers who say, um, you know, they're not themselves so bothered about all this green nonsense, but if they want to retain young people, good young people, they've got to take it seriously. So I think um, that's that's quite a powerful lever for the youngsters to have over our future. All right, so my devil's advocate pushback on that is there was a widespread sense, both in Europe and the United States in the 1970s, of a similar change in the air, right? That the the combined effects of some of the economic crises of the 70s, certainly the Vietnam War in the United States, Watergate in the United States, the riot, the, the student uprisings of 68 throughout Europe. And you had a lot of people saying this is going to lead to a permanent change, that people are going to think more about, in fact, about the environment, right? That's the rise of the modern ecology movement, which is kind of the progenitor to today's more, um, more full and robust paying attention to in the environmental crisis. And and that ended up being much more of a blip than a sea change. Or, you know, maybe these things go in waves. So it wasn't a blip. It was like Mm. two steps forward and then the 80s and the 90s were the one step back. So I just, I mean, the the pushback would be, yes, a lot of people talk about this. Yes, this is, you know, a sea change amongst young. It's, It's probably more intensive in Europe to some degree also in the UK. But what you don't see in a lot of places is, um, you know, corporate and government structures changing nearly as much as sentiment. That's very fair pushback. Um, but I guess I would argue that things really did change a lot and they just changed in the opposite direction. <laughs> that we um, got the, the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions as, as the response, the reaction to the turmoil of the previous 10 or 15 years. And I, the, I think the reason that happened was that there were um, entrepreneurs of ideas who were ready for it. And people in think tanks across both of our countries had been planning for an occasion when they could reshape society with ideas. And ideas are really important. So I suppose the moral of that is that if you want things to head in a certain direction now, you better be ready and you better have been organizing and engaging in that debate and winning winning the, uh, the famous battle of ideas. It's a very cool way of looking at the 70s. You know, I haven't actually thought about it that way, even though you're right. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this, that it wasn't a false dawn or that people just went, oh, you know, that was great to think of in alternate terms about a, a, a system of not more and more stuff, but other values. 
that it, that it wasn't a false dawn. It was actually purposely aborted, right? It was it was halted. It didn't just peter out on its own steam as people decided, hey, you know, the ecology is great and we can live in a van off the grid, but it'd be much nicer to get a subdivision and, and, and get a job for $70,000 a year. So you're saying it's more that the, the idea of pushback was intentful. It yes. was a counter-revolution that we're still living with. I like, and that's, that's, it, a, that's yeah. a good way of looking at it. I don't know if it's entirely true, but it's a good way of looking at it. So there was a revolutionary situation, but the wrong revolutionary is one, <laughs> from my perspective. The, the counter-reformation succeeded in this case. <laughs> Although we don't really know who the counter-revolutionaries would be in this particular case, right? I mean, there's no bad guy coming out of the pandemic. Not yet, right? I mean, give it a couple of years. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll go, oh, right, that emerged from it. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's a time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. Governments in every country are almost addicted to citing GDP figures as if this was proof of success. And yet it's so clearly not. Because we have climate breakdown and COVID lockdown and financial meltdown, we have to pursue something far richer to move from this pursuit of endless growth, which we can now see is hitting us with crisis after crisis, moving to a goal of thriving. Sometimes when I present the ideas of donut economics, people say, mm, is this capitalism or is this communism or is it socialism? And you think, really? Are these the only choices we have? The isms of the last century? Can we not come up with some ideas of our own and create new names for them and see new patterns? The goal of the donut is to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. That was Oxford economist Kate Raworth explaining donut economics with the BBC. So the question is government matters to a degree. I mean, a lot of what's gone on productively in terms of whether it's environmental or, or values that are not fully captured by material gain. Companies have strangely been more, and multinationals have oddly been somewhat more progressive, small p progressive, than a lot of governments, right? Um, mm-hmm. I guess you have the, the the city government of Amsterdam embracing this idea of a donut economy, that there should be, you know, they should think about maximizing a whole series of, of lifestyle values, some of which you've alluded to. Uh, is that necessary to cement these realities or, or is government, you know, government will sort of go with the flow? What makes governments change their mind? Um, I do think business pressure makes a difference and uh, central banks are certainly getting with the program now because they have really opened their eyes to the financial risk that comes from climate change and biodiversity. So you see people like Mark Carney, who was at the Bank of England, and other central bank governors really starting to worry about the the risk implications of what's happening. So those are quite powerful. I suppose one of the barriers to change is the fact that 
there's a whole swathe of um, officials, public servants, um, economists in public life who were trained in um, the 1980s and so are completely naturalised in that very uh, uh, pro-market, um, let's just fix the old small market failure way of thinking. And um, kind of not understanding the strategic role for government to coordinate change in the way that you need to with technologies or responding to global challenges. So as always, economists blame. I think this is a key lesson in life. But I think this, the discipline is certainly changing. And the question is, how do you change that kind of public mindset or that official mindset as well? But I think business pressure and central bank pressure is quite a good place to start. Hmm. Dan, I wanted to ask you about your book coming out in October 2021. Um, it's called Cogs and Monsters. And I am sort of dying to know who or what are the cogs mm -hmm. and who are what other monsters, because I have a nervous feeling that the, the cogs are us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like as a, you know, issue of self-preservation, maybe uh, we should figure out what the monsters are. So yeah, what's what there in that title? Well, we are the cogs. Um, and I'm arguing that um, economics needs to give the cogs some agency so that we um, get more control, shape the kind of society that we want. And the monsters are all of the um, unknown creatures in the way the economy is changing. So just as the old maps used to say, here be monsters, um, the technologies are changing the economy in ways that we don't really understand. And I think the subject hasn't, hasn't yet really got gripped with. So all of the things like the dynamics in digital markets, um, the creation of uh, large corporate power, and uh, this, this, this struggle to understand these and develop policies to address them is, is just beginning, really. I mean, it seems like we're very behind the times when it comes to, I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the U.S. Uh, congressional hearings about technology and the questions that are being asked about it. Um, and economics is playing catch up, too, with this, these, these digital things. Uh, how far behind are we <laughs> in an economic sense? Are we, you know... Is this a long marathon to play catch up to, or is this a short sprint? Mm, bit of both. I mean, there's a lot of work in academic economics that is uh, getting to grip, grips with these. Translating that into policy is slower, partly because um, you're teaching future generations of policymakers, but also partly because you're talking about changing laws and engaging with, um, you know, big corporations in legal disputes about what can and can't be done in terms of policy and all the, all the lobbying that goes on about regulation. So that's bound to be a much slower process. Um, you know, in, in the EU, to which we did belong until quite recently, um, there, has, there has been some quite rapid policy development in, in digital, and, and it looks like that might be happening in the US as well. Although it's interesting, in the UK, um partly as a result of Brexit and, and certainly as a result of the pandemic, you have a nominally Tory, i.e. conservative, small c, conservative government that's embracing, you know, massive safety net spending, massive social spending, um, massive investment. And, and some of this is totally compensatory, right? It's, it's partly a if we spend enough money, people maybe people won't notice that we just left the EU. But it, it does raise this question of, uh, particularly in the pandemic, governments everywhere, certainly in the United States, are spending with abandon in a way that four or five years ago it would have been met with uh, not just skepticism, but it would not even have been countenanced as serious policy. Like, let's spend $5 trillion on direct payments and small business subsidy. And while we're at it, let's spend another few trillion dollars on childcare and, and early childhood education. Um, do you think that's, and that's certainly, for, you know, from, from many people's perspective, quite a positive that we're unleashing a lot of collective capital to do things that we think are absolutely vital for a good society. Uh, it, it's certainly shown that government can do this, hasn't it? So. Um, it's, it's been a demonstration of feasibility, if, if nothing else. Um, my government is, or parts of it, are clearly starting to panic about how much uh, they've been spending. And we're about to go into one of the rounds when the Treasury tries to beat other departments' bids down and, and cut back on spending. 
Um, I don't think it will succeed because um, the, the kind of challenges that we face are pretty enormous. And it's much better to try to boost growth to keep debt at a bearable level. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a gamble. I don't know what will happen. We need, we still need massive investment in infrastructure and in healthcare and making up to um, the kids whose education and home life has been so badly damaged in the past couple of years. So I don't, what do you think will happen there? Will, will the spending spigot carry on running? I mean, it, what's fascinating, right, on two scores is uh, the, the economist class and the investing class that used to say, Oh no no no! You you can't spend that much. We're going to raise interest rates because it's going to we're going to raise the cost of spending because it's untenable. It's not wise. It it, it will throw things out of whack. That seems to be, uh, if not completely absent, then largely in abeyance. And I think my question around all this is: Are we really at some sort of fundamental change where? either by necessity or, or simply the example of having spent governments and markets are, are recognizing that whatever that outer band is of debt and interest rates and inflation, you know, was all made up anyway. These are human systems. They're not laws of nature. And uh, maybe everything that was perceived to be orthodox was just an orthodoxy of a time and a place that is no longer suited. I just don't hear a lot of people even beginning to articulate a framework of this, other than some people who have been talking about modern monetary theory, which is this idea that mm. governments print money and therefore can't ever really become bankrupt because all you know they, they have the ability to endlessly generate capital that they can spend. Uh, well, that didn't work so well at sometimes in the past, so I'm a bit skeptical about that myself. Um, I think there are limits, and at some point governments will have to start talking about raising taxes. But there are lots of other debts. You know, we have this natural debt as well that we owe to future generations. And fixing some of that is going to be costly. And um, Explain that. What, what, what natural debt do we owe? The, the natural debt of having run down um, species and destroyed the atmosphere and polluted, polluted rivers in ways that mean that their living standard will be lower than ours unless we do something to something restorative now like spending money on re, you know uh, cleaning up cleaning up rivers and reducing carbon in the atmosphere and so on so you're, you're not a devotee of like a, a techno utopian we will we will innovate our way out of these self-created dilemmas i think the innovation will take you um so far but not to fix, not far enough to fix everything I think what I'm getting from the two years, I keep on thinking of that TV show where they always started with that line, um, everything's made up and the points don't matter. Like, <laughs> it seems like I don't know that much about, you know, economics, but it's really striking to me how much of this is uh, a lot more human made, I think, than I realize, which is a little bit scary, but also a little bit uh, empowering in that the, you know, it could be created in a better way, which is, some, you know, it's what you're trying to do, Diane, right? Yeah, so I agree. It is it is human made. It is a social system, uh, but the catch is it's really hard to get many millions of humans to agree to something and all uh, work together in the same direction. And that's the kind of challenge that we're, we're tussling with. I think you know, if everybody thought the same thing, that wouldn't really be a problem. We wouldn't be debating. Um, is it should you cut the debt, or is modern monetary theory uh, absolutely right? So for you, it's also part of the problem is not. Um whether or not the frameworks we currently have are flawed, it's that they may be flawed, but at least there's a broad level of global consensus. And it's it's creating an alternate global mm -hmm. consensus. But doesn't that, I mean, it, I guess the pushback on that could be, well, then we're sort of settling for a flawed consensus because the, the primary import is that we have a consensus, not the flaws. Well, I'd rather push us to a different one. Um... But, but in my mind, it's a world of many possible outcomes, multiple equilibria in the economics jargon. And so what we're trying to do with the frameworks, that, that, you know, the narratives from data that we tell is um, get people onto one or other of those, those paths. And um, we could be on a better one than the one we're on now, but we're not going to get there unless we have a sufficient degree of agreement about it. Although when you say multiple equilibria, it sounds 
you know, poetic and, and, and desirable and not jargony. If I say multiple equal words, <laughs> just wrong. So when you are, you know, re-entering, right, you're, you're meeting with students again and talking with them, uh, you, you said earlier that you were feeling somewhat more constructive about the way in which at least the past 18 months has has cracked open possibilities, I suppose. Uh, and maybe just to speculate where things where things go from here in how governments think about what they spend. Clearly, right now they're thinking we can spend more than we thought. And maybe there is a limit. It's just that that limit might be more like Japan, right? It may be three times what we've been spending and not one and mm. a half times what we've been spending, but it can't be 30 times what we've been spending. So it's a limit, but it's, it's a limit that's well down the line. Um, I mean, surely that is on balance a good thing, right? That, that, that some of the, the breakers against using collective resources for social imperatives has it hopefully, if not temporarily, then it permanently been lifted. That's well, that's obviously, that's not obviously, I think that's a good thing. Um, I, I guess I want to see um, more focus in future on making sure that everybody gains from where the economy is going. And clearly in a lot of societies that has not been the case. And that's why we've seen the kind of, um, you know, political uh, upsets that we have over the past five to 10 years. Um, you know, li literally people on median incomes in uh, the UK have had the worst period since the Napoleonic Wars, their incomes have not gone up. And that's not a recipe for a stable democracy or society. So that needs fixing. And then the other thing I would love to see is tackling some of the ways that businesses behave, not because they're bad people, but because they are short-term profit maximizers and they create foods that are making people obese and unwell. Um, there are, um, you know, systems that are damaging people's, people's health and damaging the environment in the way that business operates. And that, I think, needs to fix things too. And that's more about corporate accounting, the national accounting and how that gets regulated and about competition authorities. Um, but, you know, that's all, that's all very doable. And I think attitudes are changing. We've seen this demonstration of what governments can do in the past 18 months. And there is a big, big generational change. I did a, a talk for schools last week, and we started out by asking them to um, uh, write down just what they thought were the three most important challenges and presented it as a word cloud. It was a really boring word cloud because they all picked the same three. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was climate change, um, inequality and recovery from the pandemic. So maybe the global consensus hasn't been reached, but in the classroom, at least, the youngins are agreeing. So that's, yeah, that's something yeah. to go with. And hard to argue with all, any of those three as absolute societal imperatives. Diane, it's great to uh, speak with you as always. And I love Cogs and Monsters as a title. It's, uh, it's a brilliant title. I'm sure it's a brilliant book. And Thank you. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's going to make me all that many friends in the mainstream economics profession, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm not sure you need all that many friends in mainstream economics, <laughs> but that's probably another conversation. <laughs> next, <laughs> next, next, next time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so you so much, Diane. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. So, Emma, are we convinced that the world is uh, moving forward the way it should? Maybe not quite Galileo-like, who apocryphally remarked after being condemned by the Inquisition for saying that the Earth revolves around the sun. After he recanted, he famously said, yes, but it moves. Is the world actually moving in a way that it should? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, what I would act, am actually curious to know about from you and after being part of that conversation is, is Diane a lone voice in the economics field or is she one of many? Because I think that might then answer your question about if we're heading in the right direction. Is this a chorus or is this a, uh, you know, lone wolf situation? 
I think it's probably somewhere in between. And interestingly, some of the names that come to mind immediately who are really challenging this consensus are, are all women. So Stephanie Kelton, who talked about modern monetary theory, Maria Mazzucato, who's been a longtime consultant about alternate ways of looking at things. There's a book called Donut Economics about you know, different ways of structuring. Uh, and a lot of these voices tend to be not, not peripheral to the economic profession, but definitely to the degree that economics more than even some was extremely male dominated uh, to the degree that there are a bunch of women voices coming in saying, hey, wait a minute, this pure focus on material gain, did we make more stuff today than we made yesterday, is a very limited framework for understanding what constitutes a good life. So I do think there is a growing chorus of other voices saying, hey, time out, wait a minute, maybe there's other ways of going about this. Um, but it remains to be seen, of course, whether or not that shifts permanently the nature of the conversation. Uh, after hearing that, though, I, I do feel a little bit more bullish about answering your first question as a yes. You know, uh, that to me is, is enough people and enough sort of new and interesting field to the people, new and interesting people to the field of economics. Not that those women are, but new kinds of voices. I think that will definitely push us where we need to go. I mean, I'd certainly like to see more integration of these things in a, in a more coherent fashion into the, the governmental discussion. Not that governments have to lead the charge here, but it would certainly be more helpful if governments were part of the movement or as it were, part of the solution and not part of the problem. And that, I think that one remains to be seen. And it's also true government structures move, change absent revolution slowly and clunkily and in a, in a cumbersome fashion. So there is that. I think for me, the most dramatic question is going to be, uh, is whatever the pandemic produced a blip and an anomaly in the greater scheme of things? Or do we look back at this moment as a real change? And of course, we won't know the answer to that until we look back on it from a much greater distance than now. But it is something to keep in mind. You know, it's really tempting in dramatic moments to go, everything is different. It's all changed. And that's usually not the case, except in moments of intense revolution, you know, governments fall and drama. This is one of these questions uh, where it's just too soon to tell. But some of the signs I think are quite favorable about what could go right. Well, on that note, Zachary, I think it's the perfect way to end. It was great talking to Diane. Thanks everybody for listening. We so appreciate you being a part of this conversation in order to keep those favorable conditions going that Zachary mentioned. Join us for the next one. To find out more information about the Progress Network and what could go right, visit theprogressnetwork.org. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening with the Progress Network. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share an episode, or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. What Could Go Right is hosted by Zachary Carabell and me, Emma Barbalucas. We're produced by Andrew Steven. Jordan Aaron is our production coordinator, executive produced by Jeff Ombro and the Podglomerate. Thanks so much for listening.